All right, well, welcome back to Adult Sunday School. We are excited, at least I'm excited, I won't speak for your excitement levels, but I'm excited about Old Testament survey. As you see, this is what we were doing in our spring semester of Adult Sunday School before we took our summer break in the month of June and July. And then in August, we had our family Sunday school on the book of Proverbs. But now we're into the fall, I guess. September counts as fall to me. But we left off our survey of the Old Testament in 1 Samuel. And that was an odd place to leave off because in the original Hebrew Bible, the book of 1 and 2 Samuel was just one book. But it's been divided in our Bibles because of the length of the book, and that goes back to ancient times when they divided it in the Greek translation of the Bible because large scrolls were very expensive, and so some of the larger books in the Old Testament got divided in half so they could go on two scrolls. And so originally it was just the book of Samuel, but we've got First and Second Samuel. It was an odd place to leave off in our study because we were right in the middle of this one original book. However, it was a good place to leave off because it's a great way for us to end on a positive note because there's positive things happening in the, in the book of 1 Samuel. And this is something we'll see throughout the Old Testament, that God is gracious and God acts, but then mankind, represented mostly by Israel in the Old Testament, fails to respond properly to the goodness and the grace of God, and therefore things get bad, and then God graciously moves his plan forward, and we see that in 1 Samuel. However, this morning, since it's been three months, since we were looking into our Old Testament survey, I thought it'd be a great opportunity for us to go back and just review Genesis through Judges, to see everything that we learned in the spring semester and see how much of that is sticking with you. And so as we go through Old Testament survey, try to each week read through the book that we're going to be discussing in the coming week. And so this week I want you to read First and Second Samuel. And if you've already read First Samuel and you want to kind of skim through that quickly, that's fine. In fact, if you find yourself really crunched for time and you don't have time to slowly read these books, at least open up your Bible and skim through them. A good way to skim through the Bible is to read the first verse and the last verse in each chapter and then just kind of look at the chapter titles that go along with it and then flip through quickly so you get the big idea of what the book is about and the general flow of the book. The first and last verse will usually give you a pretty good idea of what's going on in that chapter. So that's a time-saver way of doing it. But if you have the time, I encourage you to just read through or listen. And there's so many wonderful ways to listen to the Bible these days. Back when I was your age, I had to buy the Bible on tape and put it in my tape player and listen to it that way. But now it's all digital and you can listen to it anywhere for free. It's pretty amazing what we have. So let's make good use of what God has blessed us with. So... Old Testament survey. Let's go back and reintroduce this course. Why is it so important for us to be able to know our Old Testament? Well, when we go to Old Testament survey, what we're doing is we're going book by book through the, how many books of the Old Testament? How many books are there in the Old Testament, guys? I heard it from someone. 
39. Did you know that? You just didn't want to say it. <laughs> 39 books in the Old Testament. And we've only covered Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and 1 Samuel. And a little bit of Ruth if you count from the pulpit. We've only covered 8 so far of the 39. So we've got a long ways to go. However, these 8 are rather large. And especially the first 5 are of utmost importance. Now if there's 39 books in the Old Testament, how many are there in the New Testament? There's 66 total, so you math whizzes can figure it out quick. 27. Yeah, so 39 in the old, 27 in the new. But that can be a little bit deceiving because the books of the Old Testament are larger than the books of the New Testament. And so when you think about the Bible as a whole, 78% of the Bible is Old Testament. When you pick up your Bible and you see it's a a big, heavy book, most of that, more than three-fourths, is the Old Testament. And it's important for us to study the Old Testament because as New Testament believers in Christ, we are told in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, this is one of our key verses from the spring semester I wanted to remind you of, whatever was written in former days, Old Testament, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So Romans 15, 4 tells you that God wrote the Old Testament for you. He didn't just write it for those Jewish people living 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. He wrote it for you. He had you in mind when he put together the 39 books of the Old Testament for instruction. Instruction about what? You know, you read through the Old Testament and you see it's a distant time and place, a a different culture and a different language, and you see this, this ancient history and these Old Testament laws and prophecies about people and nations that don't even exist anymore, and you think, how is any of this relevant to me? What am I supposed to get from reading the book of Leviticus and all these different sacrifices that they did at the tabernacle. I mean, we don't have a tabernacle with an altar and sacrifices and all that, uh, the, the Levites doing their thing. Why should I read that Old Testament instruction that was for that distant time and place? Well, by reading books like Leviticus, you learn the only way that you really can learn who God is and what is the foundation <clears throat> for our faith in God. You can't really understand Christianity unless you go back and understand what God laid out as the foundational truths in the Old Testament. So you got to know it, you got to read it. One of the weaknesses of the church is that we spend so little time reading the Old Testament and especially the first five books of the Bible. And so those first five books of the Bible are the foundation, they're so important that was written for us, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You see, the Old Testament is God's self-revelation. It's God's story about himself. How do you get to know somebody? Well, you listen to their story. How did you meet your wife? Where did you grow up? And, you know, what was it like when you had your first child? And you, you listen to people's story to get to know them. Well, God has a story. God has a story of his interactions with people. It starts with him creating the world and then it goes all the way up to the end of the world in the book of Revelation. And the whole Bible is the story of God so that we can get to know him. And that's really what comes to my mind when I think of John chapter 17, verse 3. Uh, Yeah, I have that verse up here. I wanted to make sure. This is eternal life, that they may know you 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So you get to know God by reading your Old Testament. And then once you know God, then you can understand why God sent Jesus Christ. And when you have all that Old Testament and New Testament knowledge of God and Jesus Christ, then those are the scriptures that are able to make you wise to salvation and have eternal life. Eternal life is knowing God. And so as you read through the Old Testament, look for, what does this teach me about God? What am I supposed to learn about God's character, his actions, his attitudes, his attributes? All of that as you're reading through the Old Testament. That's, that's why you read it. You want to get to know God better. There's a lot of Christians who have very little knowledge of God because they don't read their Old Testament. And if they do, they're reading it without really looking for understanding God himself. Now, let's ask some true or false questions about the first nine books of the Bible that we covered so far in our Old Testament survey to see how much of what we've talked about has stuck with you. True or false? Raise your hand if it's true. Keep your hand down if it's false, okay? We'll just do it that way, nice and easy. Covenant is one of the core concepts of the Old Testament. Covenant is one of the core concepts of the Old Testament. See, now you guys look like presidential candidates on the stage where you look around, see what the other guys are answering, and they're like, yeah, I guess. Um, Yeah, covenant is one of the core concepts. That's true. Number two, the Old Testament is primarily about God. True or false? The Old Testament is primarily about God. Well, that's what I just said, right? That you get to know God by reading the Old Testament. You read it so that you can get to know God. So that's true. The Old Testament is primarily about God. Now, if you're not participating, you're assuming that every question is false. (laughs) Number three, possessing the land was central to God's covenant with Israel. Possessing the land was central to God's covenant with Israel. Is that true or false? Raise your hand if it's true. Some of you think maybe, yes? Yeah, that's true. Sometimes that gets overlooked, that we tend to spiritualize the Old Testament and we think, well, the land, that wasn't important. What's really important is, is the other stuff. But you go back and you read Joshua and the land is pretty important. And the whole book of Joshua is about the land. And this is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Israel. And it continues on throughout the rest of the Old Testament as well. Number four, during the period of the conquest, there was one central power that controlled Canaan. So as Joshua was conquering the Holy Land, was there one central power that controlled Canaan? True or false? It's false. Right. There were many individual powers, many city-states that were in control of different regions. And so uh, there were several key battles against different parts, and there was no one big capital city that had to be taken. Number five, the book of Joshua shows that Yahweh, that's God's name in the Old Testament, The book of Joshua shows that Yahweh alone deserved the credit for Israel's military victories. True or false? Raise your hand if it's true that God alone deserved the credit for Israel's military victories. That's true. The book of Joshua undertakes to demonstrate that God got the credit for the military victories. All right, number six. The purpose of the book of Judges was to explore what happened during the years between Joshua and David. The purpose of the book of Judges was to explore what happened during the years between Joshua and David. Raise your hand if that's true. Some of you might be thinking, well, no, it really goes up to Samuel, not David. But actually, I'm going to count that as true. Samuel's kind of an in-between, and uh, the 
the book of First and Second Samuel is not really about Samuel. It's really mostly about David. So we'll count that one as true. Number seven, all of the judges are spiritual heroes intended to be examples for Christians to follow. Raise your hands if that's true. No, that's false. God used many judges, a number of judges, who were not very spiritual, godly people. As the last one, Samson, being probably the worst of the, the judges as far as his character goes. All right, and then this one's not true or false, but uh, who can tell me, what does the name Mesopotamia mean? What's Mesopotamia mean? Anybody remember the geography part? Yeah, between the rivers. It's the land between the rivers. Uh, Hippopotamus is a river horse because Potama is the river. So the uh, land between the rivers, Mesopotamia. Potamia is the plural of rivers. So Mesopotamia is the land between the rivers. And what are the two rivers that uh, are around Mesopotamia? Right, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Good. All right, so... That uh, covers some of what we covered in our spring semester, but let's do a little bit more in-depth review. And so here's one more question to throw at you. I'll have lots of questions today as part of review. What are the first five books of the Bible called? Yes. What else are they called? Yeah, the books of the law. Good. What's the Hebrew name for law? What do the, he- what do the Jews call the first five books of the Bible? That's the, uh, more of the Latin or Greek name. Yeah, the Torah. So you've got the Torah, you've got the books of the law, you've got the Pentateuch, you've got the books of Moses, they're also called that, or the book of Moses, as it's called in Mark chapter 12, verse 26. And the New Testament will always refer back to it as the book of the law, or the book of the law of Moses, the law of the Lord, the law of Moses, the book of Moses. That's how the New Testament refers to those books. Because you recall that even though we, again, have divided them up into five separate books, it's really one big story in Genesis through Deuteronomy. And those five books, all being written by Moses, tell the story of God creating the nation of Israel. When you think about the first big book of the Bible, you're looking at 187 chapters in Genesis through Deuteronomy, which would, if you put it all together in one book, as you could well do, make it the largest book in the Bible. What's the second largest book in the Bible, chapter-wise? Psalms. How many Psalms are there? How many chapters in Psalms? 150. So the law has 187 chapters. The Psalms only have 150. So the law is the biggest part of the Bible. If you, if you want to say it's the, the biggest book in the Bible, you certainly can. And 187 chapters in Genesis through Deuteronomy, it's more than twice as many the four Gospels combined. You put the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, you just got 89 chapters on the life of Jesus. But you've got 187 chapters on God creating the nation of Israel in Genesis through Deuteronomy. Now, you can't determine the importance of something just by its size, as Yoda would instruct us. However, it is still a, an important factor. It is still a key to be looking into what is God's emphasis, where is God's focus in the Bible. And so often, when we go back and look at the law, 
we just look at the first 11 chapters of the law of Moses because that's the story about how God creates the nations and you have the fall and you've got the Tower of Babel and the flood and some of those key events that set up the history of the world. And so when we're looking back and we're interested in, well, how did the world begin and where did the nations come from and you know, understand geology, we go back to those first 11 chapters like Answers in Genesis is, is really cued in on Genesis 1 through 11. However, that's only 11 chapters out of 187 that is this huge part of the Bible that is the foundation for everything that God is building on. And we as Christians, we need to read the law. We need to read the books of Moses. We need to study the books of Moses. And that's why this morning I want to reemphasize the importance of the books of Moses as we get ready to continue our Old Testament survey. And we can't keep going in Samuel unless we go back and really have a firm grasp on the Torah. So, it's the bedrock of the Bible, it's the foundation of the Bible, and the Torah is about the formation of Israel through their covenant with God. Everybody, let's say that together. The Torah is about the formation of Israel through their covenant with God. One more time. The Torah is about the formation of Israel through their covenant with God. That's key. You've got to understand that. So often, ministries like Answers in Genesis, which I appreciate so much, and all the other ministries, they look at the Old Testament and it's like, okay, God creates the world, then mankind sins, and then God sends Jesus to be the Savior. And it's like, well, hold on a second. We left out a huge part there, all about Israel. And somehow we don't think that's important, but God thinks it's important. A lot of the problems that are in the church are because we do not understand the nation of Israel and what God was doing through the whole story of his interactions with Israel. Now, why should we care about Israel, this little tiny country on the other side of the world that is smaller in size than some counties in Texas? Why is this so important? Why does God start the Bible this way? Why does he choose to reveal himself through this tiny nation? Good questions, right? I'm not going to give you the answer right now. I want you to think about it as we go through the rest of the morning and talk about what exactly is in the Torah. It is the story of God, the epic hero who is forming a nation. And he is the focus. It's not Moses that's the focus. It's not Adam. It's not Abraham. It's not Joseph. But God is the hero of the law, of the Torah. Now, There are five major covenants in the Bible. Can anybody tell me one of the major covenants in the Bible? The Abrahamic covenant comes first. Uh, actually, second. I'm sorry. What uh, covenant comes before the Abrahamic covenant? Anybody know? The, Noah, the Noahic covenant. The covenant with Noah. So you've got Noah, then you've got Abraham, and then what's the next major covenant? No, that comes a little bit later, but it is one of the major covenants. The Mosaic, I heard it. So you've got Noah, and then you've got Abraham, and then you've got Moses, which is the covenant at Mount Sinai. You could also call it the Sinaitic Covenant. That's the law, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And then you come forward and you get to the Davidic Covenant, and that's four out of the five. What's the fifth important covenant in the Bible? The New Covenant, yeah. The covenant that God promised to replace the Old Covenant. What's the Old Covenant that got replaced? Which of the four that we talked about is the one that's the Old Covenant? The Mosaic Covenant. 
So the Mosaic Covenant, very important, but it does get replaced by the New Covenant. So though we have five major covenants, only four of them are still in effect. The Noahic Covenant is still in effect. The Abrahamic Covenant is still in effect. The Mosaic Covenant has been replaced by the New Covenant. And the Davidic Covenant is still in effect. Now, three of those five are found in the Torah. Genesis 6 and Genesis 9 has the covenant with Noah. Genesis 12, 15, and 17 has the covenant with Abraham. Exodus 19 and 24, Leviticus 26, and uh, Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 31 have the, the Mosaic Covenant, although it's filled out in the rest of the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as well. So, what we learn from the Mosaic Covenant and from the whole Torah then put together is God's holiness, God's grace, and God's purpose through the nation of Israel. God's purpose for all mankind, for the world, through the nation of Israel. God's holiness, God's grace, and God's purpose for Israel. That's what we get. That's the big picture. And it's broken down into Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And each book tells part of the story of God forming his covenant people, Israel. So what happens in Genesis? God chooses his covenant people, Abraham. God gives the covenant to Abraham, and that's God choosing the people of Israel as his covenant nation. That's the main part of the book of Genesis. Don't think Genesis 1 through 11 is the main part. That's the prologue. The main part is 12 through 50, where God chooses his nation through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God chooses a covenant people in Genesis. It's not the Genesis of the world as much as it's the Genesis of Israel. That's what the book of Genesis is really about. And then Exodus is God redeeming his covenant people. He brings them out of slavery and he brings them into a relationship with himself. Now the title Exodus is somewhat misleading because that only covers the first part of the book. But once God has brought the people out, the Exodus then they enter into a covenant. So you could call it exodus and entrance because the biggest part of the book is Israel entering into the covenant with God at Mount Sinai. So God is choosing in Genesis. He's redeeming in Exodus. And in Leviticus, he's sanctifying. God makes holy his covenant people. Leviticus is about the holiness of God's people. God is holy, therefore you shall be holy. He chooses, he redeems, he sanctifies. Well, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Talk about the new covenant. What does God do for us as Christians? He chooses us. He redeems us. He sanctifies us. Well, very interesting. Numbers is about God testing and providing for his covenant people. So in the wilderness, God tests the people. God provides for them. He sees whether or not they will trust in him to provide for them. So God also chooses us. God also redeems us. God also sanctifies us. And God also tests us in this wilderness that we live in, so to speak. And then in Deuteronomy, God is giving a second giving of the law to prepare the covenant people for the promised land. So that's the five books from the big picture of what God is doing with Israel. What do we learn in the law? We learn about God's holiness. We learn about God's grace. And we learn about God's plan through the nation of Israel, for the nation of Israel. All right, so... With that in mind, let's take a look at Genesis. It's just a little slow. It was, it was trying. It's just a little slow. 
All right, so here you've got on the screen uh, an outline, not the outline. There's many ways to outline these books. An outline for the book of Genesis. And these are all from Charles Swindoll when he was doing his Old Testament survey. He did a great job with it, and so I've been using his slides for us as well. And there you see the first 11 chapters, the beginnings of the human race, and the second larger part of the book, the beginning of the chosen race. So that's exactly what I was telling you. The book of Genesis isn't so much about the genesis of everything, but it's more about the genesis of Israel, God's chosen people. And so just some great information up there that we review and refresh your mind about when we were reading Genesis together. But we're not going to spend too much time there since I've already talked a lot about it. So let's go on to Exodus. And in Exodus, does anybody remember what the Hebrew title for the book of Exodus is? Uh, remember that in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, they have different titles than what we have. Most of our titles come to us from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. What's the Greek translation of the Old Testament called? It starts with an S. It's a long word. It means the 70, but it's the Septuagint. Everybody say Septuagint. Septuagint means the 70. And so there were 70 translators that, as tradition tells, worked on the translation, so it was named the 70, because they wanted to show that we had worked hard on this, and it wasn't just one person coming up with how to translate it, but that we had 70 great men working on this translation of the Old Testament. And the Septuagint became a very important part of getting God's word out to all the nations, because then God brought the Greek-speaking culture throughout the whole world through the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire, and then the Bible being translated into Greek. Many Greek-speaking people would read the Bible and become God-fearers, believe in the God of the Old Testament. And then when Jesus was beginning to be preached by the apostles, he had this, this ripe mission field, this harvest that was ready to be harvested of Greek-speaking people who knew the Old Testament because they'd read the Septuagint. Very important in history. And many times the Septuagint is what is quoted in the New Testament when the New Testament was written in Greek, and it's quoting Old Testament, very often quotes from the Greek Septuagint. Other times it quotes from the writer's own translation, because most of the writers of the New Testament spoke both Aramaic or Hebrew, a closely related language, and Greek. All right, so Exodus, the Hebrew title is These Are the Names, because many of the titles in the Pentateuch are just the first word uh, or the first couple of words in the text. And so uh, if you ever want to cheat on the test, just open up your Bible and look at what the first words are. And it's like, oh, that's probably the Hebrew title of the book. And for Exodus, once again, you see our outline up here. And this is a more complicated outline than what I like to give it's got the bondage, the deliverance, the journey, the law, the tabernacle. I don't expect you to remember five parts of an outline for a book. So I think the easiest way to outline Exodus is just what I told you earlier. Chapters 1 through 12 or 1 through 18, depends on this middle part, whether you want to put it with the end. You could put all this first 18 chapters together as the Exodus they're going through the Red Sea, and they're getting to Mount Sinai. And then once they get to Mount Sinai here, in chapters 19 through 40, that's the entrance into the covenant that has to do with God's law, the Ten Commandments, and the tabernacle that is constructed. So this second half of the book is the entrance into covenant, whereas this first half is the exodus from Egypt. That's an easier way to, to outline the book. The purpose of exodus, as we've already 
hinted at when we talked about how each book shows us God's purpose for Israel. But the purpose of Exodus stated another way is God redeems Israel from bondage in Egypt and enters into a covenant with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. So the purpose of the book follows the outline. Uh, redemption through the Exodus and then enter into a covenant at Mount Sinai. Exodus and entrance, that's the purpose of the book. All right, let's go on then to a quick review of Leviticus. Uh, where's my Leviticus slide? I don't have one. Um, all right, well, we'll just talk about Leviticus. The Hebrew title for Leviticus is, once again, the first words of the book, and he called, and he called is the Hebrew title. But we call it Leviticus, which means matters pertaining to the Levites. However, very important to keep in mind, Aiden, you weren't here for this, but I want you to know this, the book of Leviticus is not written to the Levites. You would think that it would be. You know, if it's telling you how to do the sacrifices and all the, how you ordain the priest and all the, the things that have to do with the Levites, that it'd be written to the Levites. But it's not written to the Levites. It's written to the whole people of Israel because God wants everyone in Israel to understand the priesthood. It's not like, well, just the priests need to know this stuff. So we'll write this book to the priests and you guys read it and you know it. The rest of you don't worry about it. That's priest stuff. No, no. God says, I want all of my people to understand what is happening at the tabernacle. Because this is not just priest stuff. This is what you all need to understand about sin, about holiness, about atonement, about sacrifice. These key concepts are what are still essential for our understanding of the gospel today. You go to someone and you say, well, you need to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin. If you don't understand sin, the message of salvation doesn't really make any sense. And you say, God sent Jesus to die for your sins. Well, why would Jesus die for my sins? What, what, what's the deal with that? Well, it's a substitutionary sacrifice. There has to be a blood atonement for sins. And all of this goes back to Leviticus. Then Leviticus explains sin, it explains sacrifice, it explains atonement that these are the matters of the priesthood that we still need to know today in order to be able to understand the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why Leviticus is so foundational. Now, Leviticus is not the most fun book in the Bible to read. The only book in the Bible that we've read so far that is less fun to read is Joshua. That Joshua has a couple of great parts in it, but then it's got a whole bunch of stuff about, well, this people get this part of the land, and this people get that part of the land. It's like reading the phone book. It's really boring. Sorry, uh, that's true. <laughs> uh, but it's important. Just because it's boring doesn't mean it's not important. There's a lot of laws that are in our country that are not very much fun to read. You have to go through the law books and read through all this stuff. They're boring, but they're important. And, and so there's things like that in the Word of God. God didn't write the Word to entertain you. God wrote the Word to educate you. And therefore, you read it not for entertainment, you read it to learn and know about God. And that's why you read Leviticus, even though it's not the most fun book in the Bible to read. Now, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, is Leviticus 19.2. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's quoted in the New Testament. God writes to us as Christians, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So God's Holiness hasn't changed, and his expectation for those who are in a relationship with him by covenant 
you're in a relationship with God by covenant, just like Israel was in a relationship with God by covenant. Different covenant, but same God. You are required to be holy, just as God required the people in the Old Testament to be holy. And so, what is holiness? How do we become holy? That's what the book of Leviticus teaches. There's certain passages in the book of Leviticus that are very powerful in this regard. I often go back in my heart and mind to the story of Nadab and Abihu. So in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, these are the sons of Aaron, the high priest. And it's their job to offer up sacrifice and incense and gifts and offerings to God. And God has given them instruction in Exodus and in Leviticus as to what they are supposed to do and how they are supposed to do it. Nadab and Abihu, for some reason, choose not to do it God's way, but they offer up incense to God in a different way from what God had instructed them to do. And what is God's response? Fire comes forth from God and burns them to a crisp. They instantly die for approaching God's holiness in a different way than what God told them to do. You see how seriously God takes this issue of holiness. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you come into God's presence without holiness, you're toast. Quite literally. So, the, the idea of holiness is 150 times in 27 chapters. The word holiness, 150 times in 27 chapters. A lot of Christians have no concept of God's holiness. They don't know what it is. They don't know what it means. And they're not living holy, set-apart lives. But instead, their lives are full of profanity. Profanity is the opposite of holiness. What is profane is what is common. What is profane is what is normal in the world. That's profane. Holiness is what is separate from that, morally, spiritually. There's a purity aspect of God's holiness that means that it's not like the dirtiness, the moral impurity that you have in the world. The world is profane. God is holy. We need to be holy like God is holy. The world is unclean, but God is clean. Cleanness and uncleanness is a key contrast to understand holiness in the book of Leviticus. We are unclean because of our sins. We have to be washed. We have to be cleansed from our sins in order to be in relationship with God and to be able to approach him in his holiness. So, that's the purpose of the book of Leviticus. Let me summarize it with this sentence that we used when we were looking at it a few months ago. God established the sacrificial system in Leviticus so that his covenant people might enjoy fellowship with him through worship. See? God established the the whole Levitical system of worship so that his covenant people might enjoy fellowship with him through worship. And that covenant system, sacrificial system, that's the word I was looking for, it allowed for repentance and renewal. So the, the sacrifices for sin, the guilt offerings, the sin offerings, that was God allowing for the imperfection, the sinfulness of the people and making a way for them to be continually cleansed from their sin so that they might continue to enjoy that relationship with God through the covenant. The covenant would come to a quick end. God's relationship with the people would come to a quick end in their destruction if it wasn't for this method of atoning for sins, cleansing from uncleanness, making them holy instead of profane. That's the key message. That's the purpose of the book. All right. Then we get to Numbers. 
Numbers, not as important as the book of Leviticus. Why do I say that? Because Leviticus covers like one month. And the, the whole Torah, it covers from the beginning of creation all the way up to the death of Moses around 1400 years before Christ. It covers this huge time period. And most of it is about the, the life of Moses. But the book of Leviticus is right there in the middle and it slows down and it just covers one month of Israel at Mount Sinai being instructed about holiness. And so that's really the heart of the, the book is understanding God's holiness. Leviticus is often maligned, but I can't overstate its importance. It is the very heart of the, the biggest book in the Bible and the foundation of the entire Bible. You've got to read and understand Leviticus. All right, so Numbers. What happens next? Well, God tests his people. Remember, Genesis, God chooses his people. He elects them. And then Exodus, he redeems his people. Leviticus, he sanctifies his people. And then Numbers, he tests his people. You can see how relevant all this is to us. God tests Israel and provides for Israel in the wilderness. That's the book of Numbers. It records the failures of Israel, but the faithfulness of God. This is something that becomes the common theme throughout the whole Bible. It started already in Exodus. Well, you can even go back to Genesis and see the failures of some of the patriarchs and the faithfulness of God. But so basically from the beginning and all the way through Israel's whole story, it's highlighting the failures of the people and the faithfulness of God. That's, that's the whole Old Testament wrapped up in one sentence. Israel fails, God is faithful. That's the Old Testament. So the book of Numbers carries that on as well in this time of testing in the wilderness. And that's the Hebrew title for the book, In the Wilderness. However, it has an alternate title, And He Spoke, because those are the actual first words of the Numbers, And He Spoke. And that phrase, And He Spoke, occurs 46 times in the book. So even though we think of the book of Numbers as largely just being about Israel's failures and God's faithfulness, it has a lot of God speaking in it as well. 46 times, and God spoke to the people of Israel. And Moses, through Moses. So the wilderness is a place of testing. It's a place of failure. It's a place of judgment and learning lessons. And God is a father to Israel. And he has to allow them to be tested. He has to allow them to fail so that they can learn from those failures. It's a good example for us as parents. How do we raise our kids? Well, we have to test them. We have to allow them to fail so they can learn from those failures. If you're always there doing everything for your kids, then you're going to end up with 37-year-old kids. And you don't want that. You want 37-year-old adults who have been tested and tried and learned and failed and grown. So... Be a good parent like the father and allow your children to be tested. Now, the land is also a key part of the book of Numbers. This is the beginning of the focus on the land. In chapter 9, chapter 10, 13 to 15, chapter 16, chapter 18, 20, 24, 26, 32, 33, 34, the land is talked about over and over again. And this is going back to our initial true and false question, that the land is a central part of God's covenant promise to Abraham. The land promise is a key part of the Abrahamic covenant. And this is going to affect how you read the whole Bible, including how you read the book of Revelation. See, if you read the Old Testament wrong, then you're going to read the New Testament wrong. And if you read the law and the prophets wrong, you won't understand the words of Jesus properly, and you won't understand the revelation at the end of the book, and you'll think, well, the land's not important. And we don't need a thousand-year kingdom on this earth. 
uh, where things are whatever. Uh, let's just go from Christ returns, new heaven and new earth, eternal state, amillennial. But once you focus on the importance of the land and you get that from the Old Testament, well then the premillennial position just makes so much sense. So that's why we emphasize the importance of the land in the Old Testament. Because God does. And it's important. So, the book of Deuteronomy. Let's go on to that then. So in the book of Deuteronomy, you've got Charles Swindoll's outline, looking back, looking up, and looking ahead. And I like that. That's good. The first four chapters are like review. Remember what happened. Remember what happened. And then looking up, in chapters 5 through 26, you've got a blessing accompanying obedience, compromises weakening the distinction between Israel and the other nations. They're supposed to be holy, not profane like the other nations. And that consequences follow disobedience. So you've got that that sermon. Basically, Deuteronomy is a covenant sermon. It's Moses' last words to the people saying, all right, everything that we've been through together, here's what all of it was about. Here's what you're supposed to remember and here's what you're supposed to do. I'm leaving. It's going to be you and God and God's covenant. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to do. That's the book of Deuteronomy. It's not a second law, even though the word Deuteronomy means second law, but it's a reiteration of the first law. It's the same law, it's just being repeated, it's being reviewed, it's being re-emphasized for the people. That's why the Ten Commandments appear both in Exodus and Deuteronomy. What chapter in Exodus do we find the Ten Commandments? Exodus chapter 20, yes. Two tablets of the law, Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. Now, where do we find the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy chapter... Five. Two tablets of the law, ten commandments, ten divided by two is five. So, uh, just ten times two and ten divided by two is how you remember where the, the ten commandments are in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Same law, but it's the second giving of that same law. Now, the purpose of Deuteronomy, as I've said, let me just review it one more time. Moses exhorted the people of Israel to be faithful to Yahweh and the Sinaitic Covenant so that she might go in and possess the land. Moses exhorts the people, be faithful to God, be faithful to his covenant, so you can go in and possess what? The land. The land is central. The land is how God rewards the people of Israel for their faithfulness. Taking away the land is how God disciplines his people for their unfaithfulness. The land is the huge part here in the Old Testament. All right? Now, that is the first five books, or really just the first big book, in the Bible. But then it goes on. And what comes after Deuteronomy? What's the first book after Deuteronomy? Joshua. Joshua is the first book of the second part of the Hebrew Bible. We have a word to describe the Hebrew Bible that starts with T, because T stands for Torah. And then the next major consonant, the next consonant is for the next major part of the Bible. And then there's a third major division of the Hebrew Bible that is the third letter. Uh, anybody remember the word I'm talking about here? What do you, how do the Hebrews refer to the whole Old Testament in one word? The Tanakh. You remember the Tanakh? So the Tanakh is the Torah, the law, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings, T and K. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it, it's a Hebrew letter that doesn't really correspond to anything in ours. It's that ch, ch 
sound. So the Tanakh. The Tanakh is the, the whole Hebrew Old Testament. And we have it referenced that way in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. It doesn't use the word Tanakh, but in Greek it says the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now the prophets begin with Joshua. You don't normally think of Joshua as being a part of the prophets. You normally think, well, Joshua is part of the historical books. And that's how we divide up our Bible. You've got the books of Moses, and you've got the historical books, and then you've got the poetry books, and then you've got the prophets. So we've got four parts in our Old Testament. But that's the Greek ordering of the Old Testament. That's not the way the Hebrews organized their Old Testament. And so in the Hebrew Old Testament, you've got the former prophets, which includes Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Those are the former prophets. And then you've got the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Those are the latter prophets. So you've got the former prophets and the latter prophets. They call the books of Joshua through Kings the former prophets because they were compiled by prophets. We don't know who wrote Joshua. We don't know who wrote the book of Judges. We don't know who wrote the book of Samuel or the book of Kings. We have some clues. But whoever it was, they were drawing from prophets who were writing during those time periods and then brought the history together in a way that the Holy Spirit wanted so that it's a prophetic look at the history of Israel. It's the prophets recording the history of Israel from that prophetic standpoint. In similar fashion the way Moses did with the Torah. Moses recorded the Torah to be able to explain the history of Israel in his time from God's prophetic standpoint. And so then later prophets, who are we call the former prophets, but later than Moses, they did the same thing. They continued to record the history of Israel from God's perspective so that the people would be able to learn what they're supposed to learn about God's grace, about God's holiness, about Israel's relationship to God through the covenant during the period of the judges, during the days of Joshua, and during the days of the kings. Those are the former prophets. All right? So the first of these former prophets is Joshua. We'll do a little bit more review next week as we get into 1 Samuel. But uh, let's do Joshua here together today. And then we'll be ready for Judges and Samuel next time. So, the book of Joshua, as I said, it's, it's got a long, boring section in here about the distribution of the land. So from chapters 13 through chapters 22, it's these tribes get this land, these tribes get that land, and here's the cities of refuge and the Levites, and it does have a civil war threat there at the end. That gets exciting. But a lot of, of boring reading here of addresses. Where does each tribe live? Not that interesting to us. And that's why the book of Joshua doesn't get preached very much. The only parts of Joshua that get preached are the first several chapters. Maybe a little bit about the wars in conquering. And then sometimes at the end with uh, Joshua's sermon to the people at the end of his life. And all this gets skipped. And if Christians throughout history have looked at it, they've often looked at it typologically and they've tried to uh, interpret it allegorically instead of according to its actual historical significance. So it's not a book you preach, but it is a book that we read because we read all of Scripture. And what do we get from reading about the distribution of the land? Well, that the land promise is very important. Uh, God is going to keep his promise to Abraham, to Abraham's descendants, that he gave them the land, he's taken it away, he's given it again, he's taken it away, he's given it again, and they are going to have their land. And God is going to have his people in his land that's the, the important thing that you take away from this so that you know how to read the Old Testament later prophets 
later prophets promised Israel peace in the land. And it's the same land that he's talking about here. All right, so the book of Joshua, not going to say too much about it, but I do want to point out this. Joshua is a continuation of Moses. Joshua finishes what Moses had started. Moses would have been able to do what Joshua does, except Moses failed. Remember how Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock? Remember how Moses, on several occasions, was disobedient to the Lord, and therefore the Lord said, you're not going to take the people into the land. Joshua is going to take the people into the land. Moses was the, the mediator of the covenant. It's through Moses that they got the law, that they entered into a relationship with God. And, and so, as God was redeeming his people, the final step in their redemption was, here's the land that I promised to Abraham Isaac. Now you're a nation. You've got a land. And Joshua does this. So, the reason why this is important is to show that people fail. As great as Moses was, he wasn't great enough to finish the work. And that's the way it is for all of us as well. No matter how great a man of God is, he never finishes the work that he was supposed to do because we all fail in some way. And then what God does is he brings someone else along to finish what we should have been able to finish, but we weren't able to finish because we're unfaithful to God. God will get his work done because he's the hero. And he will use us insofar as we are faithful. But as far as we are unfaithful, he'll use someone else. Nothing can stop the plan of God, even the unfaithfulness of his servants. God will get his work done one way or another. But we want to be faithful so that we can get a full reward for doing our part in God's work. You can get all this from reading through Joshua's book and everything that came around it. And that's why the book of Joshua is sometimes thought of as a part of the Pentateuch. And it's actually called the Hexateuch. Some Bible scholars and Bible teachers will say, well, really, the opening story of the Bible doesn't end with Deuteronomy. It ends with Joshua. Because you go back to Genesis, and it was the land promise. And where do they get the land? Well, it's the book of Joshua. So the first major part of the book doesn't stop with Deuteronomy. It stops with Joshua. That's the conclusion. That's the terminus of all the promises of God to Abraham, which is where it all started. So you can think of Joshua as a part of the books of Moses, because Joshua is just the one who finishes what Moses was about to do, and that's where you really get the formation of the nation. I mean, if, if the Pentateuch is about the formation of the nation, well, then you've got to include the book of Joshua where they actually have a land. That's what a nation is. A nation has a land. There's a lot of interesting discussion these days going on on what makes a nation a nation. Well, the Bible tells us that a nation has a land with borders and that God is the one who determines the, the borders of a nation. All right, so that's where we're going to end for today. Uh, stop a couple minutes here so you have time to get downstairs, grab some snacks, have some fellowship, and we'll start up again with our main service at 15 after. So have a good morning. <laughs>